Hello, friends, and welcome to a long overdue episode of The End of Sport. It's been a while. We haven't been able to record. You know, lives are are, are wildly busy. So uh, it's great to be back, um, and it's great to be back on a on an episode recording with, with uh, Johanna and Nathan. So before we get started, I just want to say hi. Hi, Johanna. How are you doing? I'm all right. What about you? Glad to be here. Yes, I know. It's been a while. It's been a while since we've chatted, yeah. um, so I'm looking forward to this. And I'm, we're also joined by Nathan Coleman Lamb. Nathan, how are you? Yeah, I'd be better if I wasn't trying to work with these piece of shit Dell computers that Duke supplies <laughs> me with. Um, then maybe we could actually record a podcast on time, and it would sound good. Uh, but you know, when you got a 12.7 billion dollar endowment, that doesn't buy a computer that works for your faculty. So no, it's tough, no, tough not times at, at Duke. Yeah, it's it's not like you need technology to do your job uh, as the world pivots on and offline. No, nope, um, exactly. For several years. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> well, it's great. It's great to be chatting with both of you. We've got a lot of things we want to talk about um, today. There's a lot happening in sport. Um, the first thing is, uh, I guess, a. Uh, it's a little bit of a, a, a promotion or a pitch for another piece that we have coming. Uh, we have coming out. Um, so uh, the day that this drops, uh, there's a piece um, that we've written in The Guardian uh, on uh, academic bonuses for um, for campus athletic workers and the lack of payment to players and, and the lack of interest in um, institutions um, actually using these uh, and paying out these bonuses. So Nathan, do you want to give a a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, like a, a shout out to to what the piece is about and why we wrote it and uh, and where our folks can find it. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing we, we have to keep in mind is um, the story that was broken last week by um, a really fine ESPN reporter, Dan Murphy. Uh, and the story that Dan Murphy uh, was covering was about the fact that uh, thanks to the Alston Supreme Court ruling, um, Basically, it became NCAA permissible for uh, member institutions to provide uh, players, any players at the university, with uh, $5,985 a year worth of essentially what they're calling a form of academic compensation, like a way to reward academic performance. Um, and uh, so then the, the question was that, that Murphy and his colleagues pursued, and I think it was a ter terrific story that they had in mind there, uh, well, are the universities actually doing that, right? They have the ability, uh, we have all this hype around NIL, right? Oh, pay, they're paying the players, right? We have compensation now in college sport, right? And again, as yeah. we note over and over again, that particular narrative con always elides the fact that the universities are not actually compensating the players. There's a third party that's paying the players in the context of NIL. We're talking about gig work. Um, you know, we've been there and done that with that story. But this is a pretty interesting test because here we have a situation where the universities actually can provide some compensation to players that they were previously not allowed to provide. Um, and they always like to hide behind the NCA, right? The NCA is the problem. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'd like to look after our players if we could. Unfortunately, we can't. So we have to pay the coach instead. We have to pay the athletic director instead. We have to have 10,000 academic coordinators instead instead. Um, yeah. So here we go. We have, we have the other opportunity. We have all these institutions that are constantly touting their academic bona fides. You know, there are 10 FBS schools in the top like 20 of the, or 25 of U.S. News and World Report's um, top universities in the country. And I use U.S. News and World Report not because I'm trying to plug them, but because as someone who teaches mm -hmm. at Duke, you know, that's the standard that Duke uses. Duke <laughs> goes by yeah. U.S. News and World Report when they want to... Um, to espouse their virtues. 
Um, yeah. Well, not one of those 10 universities in the U.S. News and World Report's uh, top 25 actually offers academic compensation to their players, per what Murphy found, per Murphy and his colleagues found. Um, and in fact, only 22 FBS schools, football bowl subdivision schools, have offered academic compensation to players, despite the fact that they are able to, you know, which to us yeah. on its face seemed like quite the travesty. Um, yep. Again, particularly given all the claims that these institutions make about how much they value athletics. And here they have, or academics, excuse me, academics. And here they have this opportunity to put their money where their proverbial mouth is, right? And actually pay the players for academic performance. So we thought after, after reading that story, you know, all right, let's see what players have to say about this, right? Like, I wonder what they think. And what we found overwhelmingly, and we talked to, you know, 10 or, 10 or even more play, current players. We talked to some former players uh, across sports. And, you know, the main thing that they said, first of all, was they were surprised to hear it. Like, when the Murphy yeah, story yeah. broke, that was the first that they knew of um, the, even po the possibility of that kind of academic compensation. Uh, one of those players is actually at a school that's putatively paying their players. <laughs> and that yeah. individual didn't know about it at all. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, one thing was th this sort of surprise. Another thing that emerged from the players we talked to was, yes, the schools do hammer them every day on the importance of being a so-called student athlete, right? And the importance of yeah. academics. Um, so it was a bit jarring for them not to, you know, place a genuine value upon that principle as they, as they claim to. But the other piece we heard was that, look, despite the fact that there's a lot of rhetoric around uh, academics, the reality of the experience is that, as we all know, athletics are constantly placed ahead of academics when it comes yeah. to the experiences day to day of campus athletic workers. And so on that level, really, they weren't surprised. And in fact, what one former private school power five player told us, and I think this, this is like one of the most powerful pieces at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, coaches actually don't want players to invest too much in academics because if they're investing too much and, you know, scare quotes yeah. on all of this too much time in academics they're not spending enough time on performance when it comes to sports. Yeah. And that's what the real priority is. And he told us unbelievable stories about the fact that like literally they were count. He's, he saw teammates counseled, and this is at an elite private power five university teammates counseled to fail classes so they could get a fifth year of eligibility. Okay. Yeah. He himself was chastened for performing too well in the classroom because that was a sign that he wasn't trying hard enough at football. And I think that's the real story here. That's what's happening. The schools are not incentivizing academic performance because that's actually a contradiction with their general imperative to prioritize athletics. Yeah. Yeah, and we've detailed several times um, that that trend um, in, in college athletics. And this is just such an obvious, um, like just an in-your-face example of, of how institutions simply don't want to put their proverbial money where their mouth is um, when it comes to academics. Uh, like you said, places like Duke, Duke it's not the only one, um, places love to cite that new that U.S. News report um, ranking of academics um, to, to recruit people and students and get them to pay so much money to attend their institutions um, and say that they care about uh, academics. But when when athletics enters the equation, all of that talk goes completely out the window. And this is a, 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 a perfect example of that. And not like a, 
uh, a massively um, like life-changing amount of money. It's not like we're talking, th- these bonuses are huge. It's a relatively low investment in just highlighting that you uh, have um, th- that you have an interest in academics that we're talking about here. We're talking about six thousand dollars. Yeah, and for yeah, Derek, like what the players said. You know, I think you're exactly right. From the institution standpoint, this is a really low ask. But from the athlete standpoint, yeah. it's enough. Like they literally told us. Oh, yeah, oh, uh, yes, would absolutely. Make a difference, yes, yeah. right? Like you. Yeah. Because they're, what, they're, what they're feeling like right now, and one of the players told us this explicitly, what they feel like right now is you have this goal, like you're putting in all this work, the payoff's supposed to come, you know, four years later, three years later, two years yep. later. There's something really meaningful to say, no, listen, you stay eligible, you pass your yep. classes, and in eight months, there's going to be money in your pocket as a consequence of that, right? When it's tough yeah. because you've got a 40-hour work week sacrificing your body on the football field, and yet you still have a full-time class load, and you're like, yeah. you know, you're losing your mind because you're working every second of the day, and your body and brain are being like taxed to the limit, to at least know, you know what? <laughs> Maybe this summer, I'm going to have a little bit more money to work with to help my family, to help myself, whatever it is. At least there's something there. It's a genuine carrot, right? Yeah. And so, like, A, you know, it's kind of sick, not to offer that carrot, frankly, you know, yeah. um, and B, I think it's just, a, it's a, it's a slap in the face of these players, right? Yeah. Like it's a, it's a totally disrespecting their effort. And it's proof that the universities will do anything they can to extract the maximum amount of value from these players, yeah. right? Without rewarding them in the way that they deserve. Like it's pure exploitation and it's, you know, they, they love to hide behind the NCAA. The NCAA rules get in the way. But again, when push comes to shove, the universities do not want to share the value produced by these athletes with the athletes who are producing that value. They don't, they, they don't want to do it. And until something forces them to do it, the vast majority of them, they're going to refuse. Yeah. Yeah, and, and let me just briefly cite... The athletic department mission statement of a couple um, uh, universities here. UCLA promises to, quote, recruit only student athletes who exhibit both an interest in the academic component of undergraduate life and the potential to succeed in the increasingly competitive academic environment of UCLA. Duke University, likewise, quote, requires that students engaged in intercollegiate athletics be students first. And that's the, the one of the great or, or those mission statements just highlight one of the great lies um, of contemporary uh, academic, so-called academic institutions um, when, when we talk about um, campus athletic workers and we talk about the athletic program and the, the sheer amount of exploitation that's going, that's going into this. So that's the context for, for why we sort of wrote that piece. Um, uh, uh, Johanna, did you have anything to add that we... I don't want to, to not have you as part of the conversation. No, yeah. And I should say, you know, you two took the lead on this as you tend to do with a lot of these pieces because it's much more sort of your real house, your context and things like that. And, and I guess one thing that I wanted to say, just stuff that I've been thinking about, this is not especially uh, uh, revelatory, but, you know, to what extent do these major institutions actually care about students' education as a whole? Like, and yeah. I think we just see that over and over and over again, right? That it is really like about a cash grab from all yeah. students, right? Like it, we've seen this in the pandemic and I think people, especially, I think especially like disabled people have known this for a really, really long time. And sadly for me, at least it's taken to the pandemic for me to really realize this, that these major institutions are not 
concerned with devoting the necessary resources in order to ensure that everyone gets the best education. Like, like we know that to fundamentally not be the case. And we also know this from the faculty side when we are not given the pay, the resources, et cetera, the support that we need. And instead we individual faculty members are expected to like plug in all the holes in the dam, um, which is a fundamental disservice to students. And as faculty, the only way that we can actually kind of take care of ourselves and be able to be even like mediocre educators, even if we want to be excellent. And reality, a lot of us are being mediocre educators right now because we can only do so much in, in order to take care of ourselves. We have to kind of take a step back and like disengage in order to take care of our own health. So then of mm-hmm. course, like for me, like of course, students' education, regardless of whether someone is an athlete or or um, a student, Right. Like that is not of any kind of concern. So like coming from that mindset and obviously knowing the whole, you know, colonialist plantation system of of university athletics and NCAA, like, of course, they're not going to pay athletes. Right. Because it is all it's all a game. Right. It's all a game. Everyone is a tool in order for these institutions and the NCAA to make more money. Um, And it just, you know, once, and, you know, it just really infuriates me, Nathan, when you were saying how they have all of these like academic coordinators and like, we've seen this with NIL, right? With a passage of NIL, we've seen um, an emergence of these positions created for NIL, like strategists and coordinators, which is yet again, taking more money from athletes in order to create full-time positions or part-time or whatever, in order to ostensibly help athletes take advantage of NIL, when really it is that the universities are making more money off of the back of athletes, giving it to more administrators, administrators who we know tend to be white, although not always, and therefore, again, making more and more people complicit in the exploitation of college athletic workers. Mm -hmm. Um, Sorry, I know this is like extrapolating a lot and kind of zooming out, but like it just, it just, I don't know, like the, the, all these issues are really compounding and really everyone except for administrators are, are, are being totally disserviced here and, and just exploited. And I think, you know, the athlete question is just kind of the fundamental in some ways, the base of all of this. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's just absolutely infuriating. Yeah. You know, two things I want to add to that. One, in line with what you're saying, we got to remember Coaches, football coaches literally get bonuses when their players perform academically. So even as they're refusing to compensate the athletes for their academic performance and they're allowed to at that low price point, administrators are making, sorry, coaches are making literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of bonuses off of the performance of those same athletes, right? So there's, when we talk about the institutions and the NCAA, I mean, this is what we're coming back to. There are actually people here. There are real faces. There are people positioned within the system who don't want the system to change because their paycheck is directly predicated Mm -hmm. on the exploitation we're talking about here. It's not an abstraction, right? The athletic departments are populated by people who are benefiting and have massive incentive not to change because those jobs are going to dry up in the athletic departments if compensation goes to athletes, right? The revenue is not going to change. The distribution of the value is going to change. And that's going to take it out of the pockets of of other admins. It's going to take it out of the pockets of coaches, right? So we see there's a direct contradiction there. It's it's not not a confusing one, right? Uh, And it's actual people who are involved in maintaining that. And speaking of actual people, there's another actual person I'd like to mention here. Um, Since we have been on a a hiatus, and I haven't had an opportunity to say this, 
a certain Coach K at Duke University, right? <laughs> We're talking about a person here who for decades has had more power than almost anyone in the entire college sports system, right? That's yes, a person, a an actual person who makes, makes you know, close to $10 million a year and could have changed the system to benefit the players, right? If he really was committed to that. So yep. despite the fact that he's paid lip service over the years to, yeah, the players do deserve more, blah, 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 oh, yeah, NAL is a good thing, right? And he has, compared to some, he has paid lip service compared to some, but that lip service is meaningless at the end of the day mm-hmm. because nothing substantively has changed in terms of the capacity of players to benefit from their labor from the universities that are extracting value from them, right? So he's been more than just complicit, right? The system has served him and he's maintained a system that has served him throughout his career. Now, another thing I want to note, because, you know, it's frankly got to the point by the end of the year that I I was losing my mind over this. Um, His decision to have a year long, you know, just self-congratulation campaign uh, because he was retiring this year. I think I've said this before. I don't know if I've said it on the show before. I, I really detest Roy Williams, former University of North Carolina coach. I have nothing positive to say about the University of North Carolina, which is an institution that like maintains white supremacy at like elite levels, even within the mm-hmm. system of U.S. higher education. Um, and, you know, Roy, Roy Williams is no exception. Roy Williams wasn't willing to take a stand against the white supremacist monument yeah. that stood on UNC's campus, despite the fact that students and his own players were fighting against that monument. And still, Roy Williams was there are good people on both sides in it. So I got not, not one good thing to say about Roy Williams in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, even Roy Williams decided the way he was going to retire was with a tweet at the end of a season. And that was it. And he just walked out. And the virtue of that is that that means that the season that his players had played, when he presumably knew he was going to be retiring, that season was about them. What do players get from these colleges? The thing that they get, the reason why status coercion exists is a thing that we've talked about. What the players get is publicity. What they get is the opportunity to showcase themselves. Okay? It's about them. That's what the season's supposed to be. And Roy Williams gave that to his players in his final year. But what Coach K did was exactly the opposite. He made this season entirely about him from start to finish. So that one, that he stole something from his players in the process, right? The attention that they deserved. But the other thing he did is he put this unbelievable amount of pressure on those players to perform. He brought back dozens of former players for the, the, the finale, the final game the final home game against UNC, which really is a huge deal down here. It's not, it's like, I think the rivalry in the grand scheme of sports rivalries is overstated in terms of how they like yeah. to talk about it. But in terms of how seriously it is taken in the try in the research triangle rally, Chapel Hill and Dur- Durham in North Carolina, it's certainly not overstated. Yeah. Um, it is a tremendous deal and spectacle here. Um, students at, on Duke's campus, if those if folks are unfamiliar, students on Duke's campus literally live in a, in what they call Kville, which is like a, a tent encampment outside of Cameron Stadium for months, literally for months, yeah. just so they can get tickets to go to this basketball game. Okay, the final home game against UNC. <laughs> they, live in, they live in tents so that they can go to that game. Um, so the buildup to this event was really extraordinary. All the players were brought back and they lost the game because there was this immense amount of pressure on them. And after the game, the coach actually threw them under the bus and said that their performance was unacceptable, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And yet he was the one that had created the conditions that made it unacceptable. Yeah. He also, in an earlier and really almost unimaginable moment, 
expressed outrage that the University of North Carolina, his arch rival, did not provide him with a gift. Yeah. His final appearance <laughs> at UNC. He was unhappy like, not to get received a gift from his rival. Um, <laughs> he then talked during the NCAA tournament about how difficult it was to cope with all the publicity. Um, yeah. There are ads <laughs> all over Duke's campus with his face on them. Uh, yeah. ESPN, around the triangle, e- e- there are ESPN ads. There have been ESPN ads with Coach Cage's face on it. You can't, you can't spell March without K, nonsense like that. Yeah. Um, who do you think agreed to be in those commercials? Do you think that they just took a screen? Like, <laughs> do you think that they just took stock footage of Coach K? Like, that was a photo yeah. shoot. The man yeah. got paid for those campaigns. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just, I highlight all this because it's just a sort of a, a perfect representation of how disingenuous the system is um, and yeah. how we cannot take the people who participate in the system at their word. I don't care what they Especially say. Especially coaches. Exactly. Especially coaches. Exactly. Until players are paid and players are unionized, not by the, paid by the universities, not one yeah. word any of these fi- athletic department figures have to say is worth a penny. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. <laughs> How entitled do you have to be to, to expect gifts? And then, like, and then we saw like what's uh what was played in the media as like a heartfelt moment where the team gave um coach k and his wife a, a, a puppy um <laughs> at their sort of yes. return and 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 it's okay like you can just say like yes like folks want to to give people gifts and all this stuff but that's in the context of coach k complaining that he did not get a gift from other people and he's got all of this power over the the entire team so that is status coercion. Like the, the fact that like those, those athletes felt they had to buy a gift. Um, there's some coercion in that. And oh, not just that, you know, who that <laughs> gift came from there. That gift came from coach Shire. You know, you know, why coach oh, I thought it was from the players. No, I thought it was, I, I, I don't oh, think okay. so. I think I, I don't yeah, think so. I, don't, I mean, I don't know the details. I don't, I you know why coach honest, Shire is giving him a gift. Because the man just handed him a job. He handed him a job. Of course. Okay. Yeah. It's pure patron. The university didn't even want to hire him. The university wanted to hire uh, uh, a completely different coach who was a member of Coach K's tree, and he handpicked a person who has no head coaching experience and is like 32 years old. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think he can. He he might you know have some reason to to give him a going away there's present. There's probably a suitcase uh, with the dog as well. Uh-huh. I think that's a little a little too much speculation, but <laughs> there's probably something else going on there too. Um, I mean, yeah, one, one kind of last thing, one last thing I wanted to add, um, cause I know we have other topics you wanted to discuss is like Nathan, you, your point that's like, he could have done more. And I think Derek, yeah. you said this too. Right. And I think we don't, we don't push these people hard enough or like, yes, no, he is one person, them. right? Like he is one person, but essentially he almost has like a, you know, cult of personality that he has helped yeah. to cultivate. Right. And that is absolutely essential to like North Carolina identity when we're talking about like UNC Duke rivalry and all these things and just bringing, you know, so much, you know, are people thinking that he brings all this prestige, not that he actually does, but people thinking he brings prestige to Duke. And like, there's a lot of power in that. And you can choose to do a lot with that power. Um, you can choose to not do a lot, which is what he did. Right. And I, I think, Um, And I even think about this with my own work is that we need to be questioning why don't people do more? Why don't they see this as a necessary thing, a racial justice thing, a social, a class justice thing, right? And this, these are choices that he decided not to make. And I just think we need to, 
we need to we need to push these people way way harder. Um, and the sp- mainstream sports media absolutely needs to because they contribute to this cultural cult of personality thing because they benefit from it financially too. And we've talked about the you know the sports media industrial con- context a lot uh, complex a lot. But I think we really need to 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 push these people harder. Yeah, absolutely. The the new or the sports media coverage of that entire the theatrical show was was nauseating to be completely mm-hmm. honest absolutely nauseating just to 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 see the stories running for a solid month about coach k re- retiring as like a main story it's just like it's not it was nauseating especially with all this context that nathan and and you johanna have have kind of laid out um, it was brutal, uh, brutal to see. And yes, we should absolutely be pushing um, on all of these coaches. I haven't been keeping up with this as much as I would have liked, but there's a, a huge movement going on within Gymnastics Canada. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and Kim Shore has been really essential to this. We had her on a prior episode that we will link in the show notes about absolutely. it. Um, but there's been finally like a huge movement within Gymnastics Canada with athletes um, signing a state, this open statement. Now, I think initially 70 some national and Olympic level uh, gymnastic uh, Canadian female gymnasts signed it. I think they're all women. I need to double check that. Um, and now over 440 athletes have signed this statement um, addressing bu- abuse, both in terms of you know sexual abuse, but also physical and emotional abuse. Um, and I just, I just want to highlight this because this is a, an enormous number of athletes to have done that. Um, but also there have been several movers and shakers within Canadian sport in general, across many different sports that have tried to address these issues of abuse, whether it's sexual, physical, or mental abuse, obviously racial discrimination within hockey as well. Um, and I think, um, I think it's something that we, we really need to sort of like uh, lift up and loud because it is, it, it's just, it's just enormous. Um, and the, the other thing that I wanted to say is, you know, within, we've talked about gymnastics a lot on the show and mm-hmm. I think it, this sport has been in the spotlight for many years because of the Larry Nassar stuff and the Caroli, um, abuse in the U S which has really opened the door to uh, gymnasts worldwide to really push for more change um, and to actually start to do some, you know, independent investigations or at least pseudo pseudo independent investigations mm-hmm. of the culture. Um, but I think with within Canada, I mean, I think this is really interesting because it's it's my understanding that um, essentially this this movement was partially spurred by. Um, bobsled and skeleton athletes who did a similar letter, I think last fall and, yeah. and you two can kind of clarify that, but that really kind of propelled it even further. And again, I think gymnastics is in a unique moment, not only because of this history of, of abuse and athletes really taking administrators and coaches to task, but mm. also the popularity of gymnastics is, is skyrocketing. And it's gymnastics has been a popular sport for the last half century, yeah. but I think it's really, really skyrocketed to be an enormous sport. I mean, ESPN noted that um, NCAA women's gymnastics has become the most engaged women's sport across ESPN social media. Um, this was before the NCAA, um, um, a championship meet, uh, last week, I think, which, um, was all over social media from what I saw. Um, and especially with black and other gymnasts of color really, you know, um, 
getting the spotlight with just being so successful with the University of Florida's uh, Trinity Thomas. There's obviously uh, SUNY Lee. Um, so it's really interesting in terms of the sport that is growing in popularity and really like skyrocketing in popularity. But then also we see all of these movements, all of these act activist movements within the sport to push for change that again, we're just not seeing in other sports quite on the same level. Um, so I just, I really wanted to bring attention to that. Yeah. And, and part of the context there, it, it was, um, I guess a little bit famously, uh, Kaylee Humphreys, the former Canadian mm -hmm. bobsledder, a gold, gold medal um, winner, uh, I believe last year, two years ago, um, stopped uh, performing for Canada and switched uh, to the United States and represented the United States in the, in the last Olympics because of uh, abusive um, uh, engagement with coaching staff and athletic staff in, um, in Canada bobsled. And then there's also like Kira McCormick, who's highlighted on our show mm -hmm. and, um, in the public realm issues with Canadian soccer and Canada soccer. And now, yes, you're, you're, you're totally right. Kim Shore is leading, um, is, is helping lead a charge, um, to highlight the abusive, um, nature of, uh, gymnastics in Canada and, and something that like, I think people on, I guess, on the outside um, of Canada, if you will, internationally, look at Canada as as this sort of um, polite, like the that trope of like polite, nice. But like, no, elite sport in Canada is not dissimilar to elite sport everywhere else. And it mm -hmm. seems to be the that elite sport and harm and abuse in many contexts go hand in hand. That right. the project of elite sport is actually an abusive one, not a competition one. And we've talked about that on this show. We've talked about how, how the, the environment of elite sport, because it projects on uh, athletic violence and trauma and injury and harm, um, is, is perhaps, um, it, it's, it's perhaps un... Uh, what's the word that I'm looking here um, for? It, it, it's, it can't be reformed, potentially. It, it's unreformable. Um, and these stories, these stories that we're seeing, not just in, in gymnastics, but also Penn State, um, mm -hmm. uh, just the, the connection between elite sports across the board, doesn't matter what the actual sport is, and harm is... It's something that we have to grapple with as a society. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I, go ahead. Well, I just think one, one aspect of what, what you're getting at, you know, we also, I think that there's a kind of universalism to what you're saying, which I think is, is accurate. And we have tried to chart. And that's, I think, been one, one element of our, our project here and looking at different sites of athletic work. But then you also look at the particularities. And, you know, yeah. we focus a great deal on, um, one of my characterizes like violent and thus masculinist men's sports, right? Like football and to a lesser extent hockey. And the fact that there are particular types of harm that become embedded in those sports with respect to the, the, the physical sacrifice that goes into the violent nature of the games themselves and also the ways in which masculinity and its toxic manifestations um, really heightens that, those kind of harmful dynamics um, emotionally and physically. But then what we were looking at here, what, what you're, you're, you're highlighting, and I mean, this would not be true in something like, you know, bobsledding or skeleton in the same way. But I mean, if you're talking about gymnastics and a big, we, we saw um, reporting in Canada around synchronized swimming. 
Um, mm-hmm. When we're talking about aesthetic sports, particularly, right, then we're, we're mostly focusing in on a way in which femininity and I like these kind of cultural notions of femininity intersect with the harm in sport. And those have particular manifestations as well, right? When it comes to Mm -hmm. the ways in which bodies are regulated and disciplined to fit within a very, very particular logic of what they are permitted to look like. Um, The exact same problems we see in sports like, or sorry, I should say, like uh, artistic uh, forms like ballet, for instance, Mm -hmm. right? Where especially women's bodies are subjected to um, these standards of beauty that then require people to go. And this is what, this is where I think there's a direct analog to what's happening in the men's sports. We often talk about, right? That sport is held up as this healthy enterprise. And that is one of the predominant justifications. And yet in order to maximize performance per the logic that currently exists of what performance should look like, it requires profoundly unhealthy practices, whether it is destroying one's Mm -hmm. brain in football or whether it means, you know, essentially being required to develop an eating disorder uh, in a sport like gymnastics or synchronized swimming because only a certain type of body is considered permissible and almost no human beings naturally have that kind of body. And it's not actually healthy for almost any human beings to have that body unless they are naturally predisposed towards it, right? Again, a very, very small handful of people. Um, And so in order to achieve the standards required by the sport, people must suffer harm. Right? And aesthetic sports are really toxic for that reason in the same way that violent sports are really toxic fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I, yeah, no, I, t- I totally agree. And, you know, um, I think, and again, you two can speak more to this because you're more kind of grounded in what's going on in Canadian sport. But um, according to the sport minister, and I'm not going to get her name right, Pascal Saitong, um, she noted that um, there are accusations of maltreatment, sexual abuse, or misuse of funds against at least eight national sport organizations in the five months since she's been appointed. I mean, that is such an, a massive number. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually should wish I'd looked up which ones because that would be interesting to kind of compare to what you're saying, Nathan. Absolutely, with the aesthetic sports being the ones where people's physique, um, because it's considered part of part of the sport and is actually like um, awarded points based on that, right? That it gives its quote unquote, like a competitive edge. Um, would be really interested to see which sport organizations are talking about. Um, but just that number eight is just totally out, uh, outstanding within a five month period, especially Derek, in light of what you said about Canadians supposedly being healthy, um, also being socialist. And so therefore more like humane, right? There's sort of all these things that come to mind that when, when people tend to think of uh, Canadians and Canadian culture abroad um, that are just totally debunked when you actually look at any of these facts. Yeah, and if, yeah, I, and if I could just add one more story, one more thing to, sure. because I, I want to be clear about this. I think that because it, it, it can be, you know, especially because we don't talk about this that often, this particular issue around aesthetics, that like I'm not trying to make an indictment of aesthetics or aesthetic activities, right? Um, or to say that they're less valuable in the sporting universe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a judgment about, you know, uh, about that. And I actually feel like the best virtues of sport are in the aesthetic qualities that sport can have. Yeah. Um, yeah. The problem is, the toxicity that comes from a very strict understanding of what qualifies as beautiful, essentially, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that what that therefore scores points in a very literal way, as Johanna put it, um, that's what I think is kind of irredeemable about it or needs to be fundamentally altered for 
these sort of sports to take on the aesthetic quality that might otherwise be desirable. Um, So I just just want to be clear about that. I'm not trying to minimize the activities or say that these sports are less valuable sports because they care about aesthetic considerations. It's more just to really parse out what is considered aesthetically valuable and what isn't. Yeah. 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 And and I think the kind of last thing that just to kind of uh, compare it to another topic that we and many people are talking about um, with respect to Leah Thomas and, you know, Mm -hmm. swimming, you know, people don't win or lose based on how they look, the way more aesthetic sports that can be a part of it. But the image of of her um, is absolutely central to the critiques that are being made. And that's historically been the case within swimming. And, you know, I've, I've talked about this, you know, with issues, you know, with my own body and stuff like that. But if we go back to, you know, the, the roots of transphobia within the sport, if we go back to the East German doping of the 70s and 80s, right, all the critiques were based, yes, upon whether they were winning or not, but also because aesthetically they look like men. Um, and that has always, always been the heart of that. And even, you know, Nancy Hogshead Maker and all these other people who um, are st- or are like, you know, white feminists and supposedly support women's sport, but yet they reinforce again and again all, is, all these issues of femininity versus masculinity when we know that there's a spectrum and that both those things are ideas and they're not actual realities. Um, but they use that in order to harm people, even though some of these, such as Ma- Hogshead Maker, are some of the same people that have suffered under these exact same things. And then they're just reproducing the harm that they themselves experienced. I mean, Martina Navratilova, when she came out, you know, as gay, right, people accused her of looking quote unquote manly, right? They're, they're repeating these same things. And again, I know that a sport like swimming is not, you know, the, the, the points are not, you know, people don't win or lose based on how they look, but people use that aesthetic and attached to ideal ideas about gender as a way to exclude people and include certain people. And I, and I think we can probably say that about most, if not all sports. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. Um, and, and I, I, I guess I just kind of want to pivot to one last discussion, um, not to take anything away from this discussion, but one last discussion about um, some recent developments uh, in hockey um, and uh, in the Kyle Beach um, story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just want to briefly, I, I don't have much to say about um, what's gone on, but but if folks are um, at, uh, on April 15th, so earlier or late last week, um, the NHLPA, the, the Players Association, announced the release of a, um, of a, uh, of a so-called uh, putati- a putatively um, independent um, org- uh, uh, investigation into what happened with Kyle Beach and the, and the um, Players Association, conducted by the law firm Cozen O'Connor, um, that found that there was no systemic issues mm-hmm. in how the NHLPA responded to Kyle Beach. Um, but it was the result of, quote, miscommunication and misunderstanding. So this was supposedly a robust um, investigation into fe- emails, phone calls, interviews with folks um, conducted by um, Cozen O'Connor um, that found that there were no systemic issues. I would argue that that, like 
is one it's it's just silly it would to think that there's no systemic issues when it comes to um sexual uh, uh, abuse and harassment in hockey and in hockey culture mm-hmm. um and in how the NHLPA um responds um but also I found it interesting and this was pointed out by uh, Gabby Ugarty I I believe is um how to pronounce the name sorry uh, on Twitter if I've got your name wrong that Cozen O'Connor actually had sponsored a, a series of events um, where um, senior counsel to the NHLPA spoke about the NHLPA. And that law firm is very interconnected to the NHLPA. So it's it's unsurprising that they kind of came to this um, conclusion. But also, if you read through the transcript, this is the most important thing. If you read through the transcript of Rick Westhead's um, uh, interview with Kyle Beach, He said in his own words several times, one, everybody knew. Everybody knew what was going on. And the the context of this is everybody, he's referring to not just his own teammates, but also folks at the NHLPA. He said in this interview that he told the NHLPA. So if the NHLPA didn't immediately raise red flags, tweet about it, send messages to Gary Bettman, then they, then there was a systemic problem. Then there is something systemically wrong. It's not miscommunication. The moment a survivor comes and tells your organization and you are tasked with protecting those, that person, the moment they come to you with anything like this, it is your duty, your obligation to bring that immediately all the way up to the chain to every, to hire lawyers, to get folks involved, to tell the NHL to, to, um, to raise the alarm. And if you do not do that, that is a systemic issue. That is in and of itself a systemic issue. It's not miscommunication. It's not misunderstanding. And reading that report like it was another nauseating experience for me just just seeing the fact that like this report what it was is we don't believe survivors mm-hmm. that's that's what the report said well it, okay so i didn't do a thorough comb reading of the uh thorough reading or combing of the report but even if it is a miscommunication misunderstanding, those are systemic issues, <laughs> yes. right? That is bad policy and bad, yeah. um, that is bad, I hate to say politics, but it is, right? Because as you said, it means you are not believing that someone has been sexually abused, right? Yeah. And, and that is a political belief to, to refuse to believe a survivor and refuse to devote any sort of resources, even, and if you choose to not have any like legal codes or anything within your organization, that is a systemic problem. If you are misunderstanding, right? That is, honestly, that is a choice to misunderstand yeah. sexual abuse, even, and, 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 and um, at some point, uh, we're going to have uh, Mara Kire on here, who's a historian of um, sexual assault against women. Um, regardless of whether it's sexual assault against women or not, people have known for a long time that sexual assault and sexual abuse are awful, that it's traumatizing, right? That ju- even though it took until rather recently for there to actually be like 
governmental, state, federal, whatever, legal codes against it, it doesn't mean people haven't known for centuries, if not longer, that it is wrong and it is harmful and damaging and bad and needs to be addressed, right? Yeah. People have been doing saying this for a very, very long time. So if in the last couple decades, and I forget when um, the sexual abuse was against Beach was reported, again, I'm sort of fuzzy. I, it's been so long since I've kind of thought about this, but um, like the, the, the miscommunication, misunderstanding, those are systemic issues. Those are political issues, a refusal, as you said, Derek, to believe survivors and to protect anybody. And so even all these organizations that are saying, you know, it's not our legal duty to like take care of athletes. That is a political choice to not do that. That is a cultural choice to not do that. And therefore these are systemic issues. So even, even if, and you know, I bet that it is not actually, these are not, these were not issues of miscommunication, misunderstanding. I, I don't, I agree with you. I think these were actually not the case, but even if they were, right, these are still systemic issues. And so it's just, you know, bullshitting the language over and over and over again to, to kind of um, absolve themselves. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the lack of, I tweeted, I tweeted this, the lack of care is actually like mm. both like a personal and institutional failure on the part of both Don Fair, who's the executive director of the NHLPA and the NHLPA itself. Just the lack of care, because if somebody cared, they would have immediately done something and nobody cared. So, no, so nothing was done. That was the, the, the quote unquote miscommunication. The miscommunication was nobody gave a shit. No one did anything to anything, even the bare minimum. Um, and, and that's just, it's just another example the the whole report and the whole like theatrics behind this and the NHLPA releasing like the board deciding to release this. It's just all to protect the self-protection and protect the powerful people who, who, who harmed Kyle beach. So it was just, it's something that I, I wanted to, to chat briefly about, but I have a few thoughts outside of just, it was just disgusting in so, so many ways. Um, so uh, there, we talked about a lot, um, and I know we're up against some time restraints. So I think we'll end the episode there. It's been a little bit of a catch-up uh, episode. Um, please, uh, if uh, if you're interested, the the uh, piece in the Guardian that Nathan uh, and Johanna talked about earlier uh, is out now, and that's linked in the show notes. Please check that out if you're interested. We think it's a really important. Um, uh, an important intervention. Um, and as always, if you're enjoying the show, I know it's been a while. It's great to be back recording. Um, but if you could uh, leave, uh, you know, like, share, um, subscribe to the podcast uh, and leave a review, that would be um, brilliant. Uh, and as always, if you, uh, if you are interested, we do have a sort of Patreon that you can um, help support support the show. Um, I think from our conversations, we're going to get be, be getting back to a more standard schedule um, now that the terms are are kind of ending ending. So, um, with, with that said, thank you for listening to the show, uh, and, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.